Hello and welcome to Give Yourself Some Leeway with me, your host, Eugene Lee. I really hope you've all had an amazing week and taken some time for self-care. Put yourself first and foremost. Be that maybe you started off this morning with a glass of water and rehydrated, giving yourself that mental clarity. Maybe you just cracked a smile to yourself in the mirror and started your day off with that one smile in your reflection. Or maybe in some other way, in any small way, and celebrated those small wins. And speaking of celebrating wins, for those of you who've been following the podcast a while now, you are probably familiar with my stretch goal for 2023 of sharing 100 stories of people's personal experience with burnout, how it affects them in the workplace, in their relationships, and on their own personal well-being. So every guest I have on the show who shares their personal experience with burnout is a win for me. And I celebrate it every time I have a guest on. So I'm delighted to introduce you to today's guest, Kate Donovan. For those of you who are not familiar with Kate Donovan's work, she is the author of The Bounce Back Ability Factor. She's an acupuncturist with a master's degree in Chinese medicine. And you're probably familiar with the Burnout Podcast. Kate is the host of Fried, the Burnout Podcast. Now, I'm delighted to have Kate here on the show. She shares her personal experience with burnout. And we also talk about the difference between burnout prevention and burnout recovery. We talk about how the there's a correlation between adverse childhood experiences and burnout. And we also dive deeper into uh, Kate talks a lot about how she uses resentment as a superpower. So we dive a bit deeper into that and what she really means by using resentment as a superpower. Now, I'm going to have all the links for Kate. If you want to get in touch with Kate, you can reach out to her on LinkedIn. I'm going to have those links in the show notes. But you can also continue the conversation. The space is open for discussion over at GiveYourselfSomeLeeway.com. You can send me a DM or a voice note on Instagram at Eugene.Leeway or shoot me an email, eugene at leeway.ie. Thank you, and I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode with Kate Donovan. Kate, welcome to Give Yourself Some Leeway, and thank you for taking the time to join the show. I'm so excited to be here. Can't wait to have this convo. Amazing. Um, I, I think for people who aren't familiar with your podcast, Fry the Burnout Podcast, um. Would you mind telling a bit about your own personal burnout experience? That can be a, a long story or a short story. So I'll go with the the shortened version and try to still capture all of the pieces of it. Because as someone who's gone through burnout, you understand that the longer you're in recovery, the more you uncover about your own burnout story. It seems real obvious at the beginning. And then two years later, you're like, ooh, that was part of it. And I didn't really know. So for me, my burnout story started in absolute childhood. I grew up in a family where there was addiction and alcoholism, and that led to a lot of coping mechanisms, perfectionism, people-pleasing, poor boundaries, hypervigilance that I carried with me throughout my whole life. And they were really useful for me. Perfectionism is a great thing when you're a student age because you do well in school and you get all the gold stars and everybody praises you. So you hold on to it. As an adult, when I finished my master's degree in Chinese medicine, I moved to Poland. 
and I refused to feel anything less than uber independent. And my husband was Polish. I was getting married. My husband was Polish. I didn't speak Polish when I got there, but I forced myself to learn Polish fluently, start a business in Poland, be successful at that business in Poland. And by the time I was 28, I was exhausted. My thyroid was falling apart. And I told my husband, I've got to get out of this country. Like the reason that I feel terrible is because of this country. So in my mind at that time, my burnout story was I live somewhere that doesn't support me, that isn't in alignment with my values, that doesn't suit me well. I hadn't, I wasn't thinking about the rest of the stuff then. We moved to Prague, which is a much calmer, more open, more bohemian, both in location and in energy place. And my fatigue continued. And my health got a little better and then a little worse. And then my emotions got a little better and a little worse. And I couldn't quite, I was like ping-ponging back and forth between feeling like crap all the time and then feeling better. That's when I finally realized it was actually burnout. And so I did what I do as a nerd. I read every piece of research that was available on burnout in 2016. It took me a full year to get through all the research. And while I was going through it, I realized that it didn't talk about me. I was a female entrepreneur when I burned out. So I wasn't a hospital worker, a doctor, a nurse, and I wasn't a corporate worker. And that's where all the research is done. So that led to me searching for deeper and bigger reasons why I might have burned out, which could then help me figure out what do I need to do about it. Awesome. And so that was uh, like your burnout recovery hadn't started until after Prague. That, that you had within Prague. Yeah. Okay. During Prague. Okay. So that was like your moment of realization that this was an ongoing thing, that it was bigger than just the environment in Poland. Yes. Yes. It was a, a little bit of a harsh reality for me to face. And also I had a lot of support at that time. I had a therapist. Then I got a coach. When I had enough energy again, I worked with a functional nutritionist. I was doing acupuncture the whole time, not just doing it, performing it on other people, but I was actually receiving acupuncture as well. So a lot of people that go through burnout, I find that they say, well, I did it all by myself and now I'm going to help you do it better. I'm here to tell people I did not do it by myself and I don't think you should either. Yeah, a hundred percent. Like, uh, like I was the same. I had like a, a lot. Of, it took me a long time. I thought it was going to be a quick four weeks off work, quick fix, get back into the same routine. Whereas it was trial and error, trying some things that worked, some things that didn't, and it was the bones of three years before yeah. I started to feel like me again. Yeah, yeah. It was about two, about a year and a half until I started feeling better. And about two years until I considered myself recovered, which meant to me that I no longer feared burnout. So I got to the point where I realized if I started going down that road, I would notice it and roll myself back. Like I feel strong enough and aware enough to pay attention enough to pull myself back if need be. But that strength took two years for me. And that's, let's say, that recovery journey. I think there there are moments along that recovery journey where you're not only trying to recover from your burnout, but you're also trying to prevent it from happening again because you kind of tend to fall back into that vicious cycle because it's the old habits that you knew and the old, let's say, beliefs that you had around when you can 
uh, rest and recharge. Um, when you can, what boundaries you should set and what boundaries you shouldn't set uh, when that kind of the imposter syndrome and all that sets in and you're trying to fight against those old habits and beliefs. Um, did you experience something similar, let's say, in your recovery journey over those two years? Yes, absolutely. And this is kind of the only burnout prevention that I believe in, like preventing it from happening again. Because most of us that are prone to burnout are not going to be aware enough before we burn out the first time to actually prevent it. So people that focus on burnout prevention in the world, I'm thinking, cool, I like, I, I understand the idea. And most of us that end up in this place are going to blast right past your information because we're thinking that doesn't apply to me <laughs> until we fall flat on our faces. <laughs> so, and I also think that actually speaking about burnout prevention specifically, when you're not talking about preventing burnout relapse is sort of silly because burnout prevention, when you're not talking about relapse is just stress management. Stress management is burnout prevention. Burnout prevention is stress management. We don't need to write a new book. There are a million books. The information is there. Meditate, breathe, exercise, eat well, sleep, drink enough water. Like, don't overdrink coffee. We know these things. Like, there's, it's not surprising. But burnout recovery, because there's so many things that have happened in your body and because your brain structure has changed, you actually need to put into practice much more than just stress management, right? Like it's bigger than just stress management. Does Was that true for you too? Uh, yeah, yeah. Like it was, uh, like I, I, when I first burned out, um, everyone was saying like, oh, you need to practice mindfulness. Mm. Uh, and yeah, mindfulness right. is it. And I know this is there like, <laughs> how can I practice mindfulness when I don't you even can. know what I'm feeling myself? It's like, yeah, exactly. it's like I, I can't be present with myself if I can't I, I couldn't even process my own thoughts nor emotions so I didn't know how to be mindful so mindfulness exactly. was out the window I was like mm -hmm. you know what that can be something that I can focus once I start feeling like me again and that's let's say as you said a burnout uh burnout prevention technique prevention technique one 100% preventing relapse it's it, right and that's when you can start applying mindfulness right Exactly. And recovery really requires you to, number one, increase your overall feelings of safety. So your brain can't come back to its normal level of functioning, cannot create its normal connectivity or healthy connectivity if it doesn't feel safe. Because if it feels that it is in danger, it stays on high alert, which is where what got you to burn out in the first place. So the first thing that we need to do is create more safety, which is hard and confusing. Like, what does it mean to create safety? So if we're talking about like the Huberman Lab podcast, one of the things he might suggest would be non-sleep deep rest. This is pretty much the same thing as yoga nidra, which is like sleeping yoga. This doesn't mean you're doing any poses. You do yoga nidra lying down or a body scan meditation which is the same as non-sleep deep rest and yoga nidra. These are all the same techniques. But what they do is teach your body how to progressively relax, which tells your brain they must be safe because they wouldn't be able to release their muscles and their tension if they were in danger. So you have to sort of retrain yourself and your brain to rest, 
because it's probably really hard for you if you're someone who's burnt out and you need to increase feelings of safety so your brain can start to work again. Right? So this is like first and foremost, if you don't increase your feelings of safety, you are not healing from burnout. It's not going to happen. That was shocking to me. I had no idea that I felt unsafe in the world. I grew up in, in Massachusetts, and I said I had a significantly difficult childhood, especially when I was younger. I thought that I was safe because I was tough. I was like, well, I can protect myself. F everybody. You know, like, I'll punch somebody, which is what I really thought at the time. Like, I'm tough. I can protect myself. But I didn't realize that the areas that I felt unsafe in had more to do with being loved, not being physically safe. I felt like I must overperform and overgive to everybody in my life because if I don't, they won't love me. I feel unsafe in every relationship that I have because I think if they find out who I am, they'll ditch me. I feel like if I don't perform well enough with my patients, I'm not going to earn any money because I won't be worth their time. My safety was in relationships and in connections, and I didn't know that for a very long time. And it's not until you have that awareness, until you are aware of that safety that you can work on it. Exactly. And so up until then, you were probably sabotaging a lot of uh, like personal relationships, uh, professional relationships as well. It was all self-sabotage because you weren't aware of this issue you had around your own safety. Not only was I not aware, but if somebody had told me that that's what was happening, I would have told them that it was blatantly untrue. Yes, you were in complete denial of it as well. Then Complete. Yeah. 100% complete denial. I think it's like, as as well, I think um, I had something similar in terms of work identity and, and let's say yeah. determining my self-worth depending on mm -hmm. how much I worked and how much mm -hmm. I got out of work. Mm -hmm. And um, that was uh, when I when I uh, initially burnt out, like proper rock bottom burnt out and I had to go to a doctor. Like I thought that I was having heart failure and I was like, Eugene, you're 27 years old. This cannot be heart failure. I don't know why it was, I was having my first panic attack. I was hyperventilating and everything. Yeah. I went to the doctor, explained out all the symptoms and she was like, you need to take time off work. And straight up, I was like, I don't do that. I don't I don't take time off work. That That's not me. And she was like, that's precisely why you need to take time off work. Yeah. And I was so glad that was her first approach was take some time off work, spend a bit more time outdoors. You love going for walks, go for longer walks, take, yeah. take some time off work and recharge. And yeah. it, like her first um, approach wasn't medication or anything. It was Thank take goodness. some time off and go out and spend time in nature. And it was yeah. definitely long-term the most the most effective um recovery yeah. um a step for me to take yeah absolutely this is an absolute burnout recovery step and it's interesting that she said go for walks which is really smart a lot of doctors don't have a lot of knowledge around burnout so they'll say well you should exercise to manage your stress but once you're already in burnout really intense exercise sessions first of all are going to be out of reach for you you just you don't have the energy to do them second of all make you more tired so instead of like, I'm a rower, I rode for an hour this morning, we finished rowing and I was pumped and ready for the day because I'm not burnt out right now. But if you exercise that intensely when you're burnt out, you need to go home and take a nap 
it's not helpful for you. This is, again, this sort of delineation between burnout prevention and burnout recovery. When you are in chronic stress and you can exercise, it will help you move through the stress hormones 100%. When you're already burnt out, walking slowly in nature will absolutely help. Going for a 3K run, 5K run, not going to do it. Yeah, I, and I love how you say running there as well, because when I first burnt out, um, just literally just before my burnout, and uh, I was trying to run away from all the stress and yeah. uh, all that, uh, the, the, the boundaries that I hadn't set and all the extra commitments and responsibility, the, all the overwhelm, I was running three to five uh, kilometers every day or mm -hmm. every morning mm -hmm. or every evening mm -hmm. after work. Mm -hmm. And I found that the running, what I, I thought I was chasing the runner's high, but I was actually looking for, it was it was a form of escapism at the end of the day. Yeah. Because when I was running, I didn't have to think. I was only focused yeah. on running from point A to point B and trying to manage my breaths in between. And yeah. that was the only thing I was focusing on. And, yeah. uh, and, and just playing loud music and drowning everything out. Whereas when I went for a walk, I was either listening to everything around me in nature. If I was walking around in the city, I was probably throwing on a podcast and getting some inspiration from God knows where, whatever rabbit hole I was going down. And it was a lot more peaceful. I was like, okay, my mind is actually processing these thoughts. And yeah. I and, and it's, it's actually working through things and seeing what do I think of this information? What's my opinion? And I was yeah. actually processing a lot more thought and emotion on my walks compared to when I was doing high intensity exercise such as running. Exactly. And so you were running to disconnect and walking to connect. Yes. Right. Disconnect is at the heart of burnout. This separation from people, from value, from self. It's really hard to understand your value and that your value is inherent. So if you're listening to this and you don't necessarily believe that. Let me repeat that. Your value is inherent just because you exist. It's really hard to understand that when you're disconnected from yourself. You're not treating yourself with any sort of respect. You're not, this is, I call this um, foundational self-care. This is a burnout recovery plan, part of a burnout recovery plan. This is another way that you teach your body and your brain that you're safe. You drink when you're thirsty. You go to the bathroom when you need to go to the bathroom. You eat when you're hungry. You rest when you're tired. Simple things, but tuning back into your body and then showing up for your body rebuilds your self-trust and helps you start to believe that you're worth the attention that you're giving yourself. But when you're disconnected, you don't even know if you're hungry or tired or thirsty or you're not paying attention. And it's not important because you're taking care of somebody else or something else. You're writing that last email or you're getting your kids lunch ready or you're doing whatever it is that you do when you are ignoring yourself. I think what you're, let's say, you're kind of trying to tune back into your, your body's intuition and trusting your own intuition. This isn't even intuition. This is primal needs. Eat when you're hungry. Like, let's make it as simple. This is, I don't even want to go so far as intuition. I want to keep it real, real simple. I neglected myself for so long. I didn't drink water for almost a decade because I was too busy 
and it was too much trouble to get up and walk across the room and get some from the water cooler. Being able to actually just notice I'm thirsty and then drink something is a skill that people that burnt out often need to rebuild. It sounds silly, but I've seen this be true over many, many years and hundreds of clients. I love that because I think that's, especially with give yourself some leeway, that's always, there we go, this, uh, <laughs> the signal to We're drink We're going to drink the, yes, well, exactly. Yeah. But like, uh, it's it's always, what's the simplest thing that people can do yeah. in, in order to, to go forward or let's say one quick win for today. And I always say, start off your day with a glass of water. You're yeah. rehydrating your brain and you're going to start yeah. thinking clearly first thing in the morning. And that's a win. And yeah. from there, you're going to cascade and snowball into many more wins throughout the day. Just start off with one glass of water and you're already ahead. Agreed. 100%. Hands down. It's fabulous advice. And now we're going to sip water. We're going to do we're going to do water breaks today. <laughs> and yeah, as you said, like once you start drinking more water, you start realizing how dehydrated you've always been your whole life. And you're just like, oh, it's like I've I've never had to. I've. It's not until you start drinking enough water every day that you realize, oh, wow, this was all because of dehydration over the years. You've had yeah. all these headaches or these like IBS issues and the likes. And it's like, oh, wow, these are all so much like, e like every day is so much easier now that yeah. I'm I'm drinking enough water. You're probably yeah, getting so up simple. and walking around more because you're taking more bathroom breaks. And you're like, OK, I'm actually a lot more active now that I'm drinking more water. Your Apple Watch is being like, yay, you got up 10 times today. Way to go. <laughs> and it's hard and it's still hard. I I think it's part of this is some sort of self-neglect, right? You're paying too much attention to other people and other things. And part of it is we're taught to ignore ourselves. That's how we get through school. When we get to school, what we're taught is to ignore our urges. And part of this is really necessary. Like learn how to stand in line and wait your turn. Sure, this improves executive function. But another thing we learn is hand like hand up, miss, can I go to the bathroom? And having somebody say, no, not right now. It's reading time. And you're like, but I'm seven and I'm going to wet myself. But you learn to hold it. You learn to ignore it. You learn to not have a drink during the school day because you're not allowed to have drinks on your desk because you'll spill it and make a mess. So you don't drink. You drink something in the morning. You don't drink anything until lunchtime. Then you don't drink anything again until you're home from school. We're literally conditioned to ignore our body's signals. It's no, it's not surprising to me that people have a hard time with this. You know? Yeah, and I actually came across something similar as well that happens in healthcare with nurses and the likes that they yeah. avoid drinking throughout the day because if they take less bathroom breaks, that they don't that they have more time between patients, and mm -hmm. um, so they don't. Teachers drink. They, the same. Yeah, so that they could be mm -hmm. going from a ten hour to a sixteen hour day, and they might not drink for the whole day. Yeah, and you think then it's like if you're that dehydrated, how can you make as let's say as a doctor or a nurse, how can you make uh, medical decisions for someone? As a teacher, mm -hmm. how do you have the patience to put up with uh, a classroom full of students? And and as a result, you're probably going to get emotional with them, and you're going to, and you're going to react in some way if you're not yeah. thinking clearly. And not your fault, right? Because the school doesn't or the hospital doesn't provide you with an easy way to take a break. If you have classes back to back to back all day. You don't have the option to go to, you can't leave 25 five-year-olds in a room by themselves. You can't, you can't do it. 
So what do you do? You know, so I don't, I, I understand why it happens. And this, this is the part of burnout where it's like the system is broken. So part of this is our own stuff that we bring to the table, our own, the coping mechanisms that we bring. Part of this is the environment that we're in. Part of this is cultural pressures. Part of this is, right, there's a million different pieces that have to come together to create what like epidemiologists would call the web of causation, which makes us vulnerable to burning out. Yeah, and I think a lot of people, when it comes to burning out that way as well, that there's a lot of blame culture that, oh, it must be the employer's problem or the system is broken and that's why everyone's burning out. But there's, let's say, not a, a lot of room for discussion when it comes to, okay, how do we solve this? Right. And I think that's well, because why... we don't have control over all those pieces, right? And so people get all up in arms. But it's like, well, let's look at the pieces we can control. I had some one of my clients, I'll never forget this because it was so funny. The first task I gave one of my clients was to buy a new nightstand. This is where we started her burnout recovery because we were talking about increasing feelings of safety and she scanned her room, not on purpose. She was just moving her computer. I said, that nightstand looks high. She said, yeah, every day when I go to lay down in bed, I'm a little bit worried that I'm going to like knock my eye out because it's the edge is right next to the, my bed. Such a silly thing. I said, okay, well, your first job is to buy a new nightstand because this is decreasing your overall feelings of safety just before you go to bed. That's a really bad time to feel unsafe. She bought a new nightstand, and within a couple of days, she said, you know, I really hated all my plates. I got rid of them and got new ones that make me feel better. And I was like, fabulous. She said, and all my good towels are in the guest bathroom. I said, take them back. She said, can I do that? I said, of course. They're your towel. You could do anything you want. Buy the nice shampoo while you're at it. She started her burnout recovery with this really basic make yourself feel safer. And then she started looking around at other things in her house saying, what other things like put me on edge, make me feel uncomfortable, maybe not directly unsafe, but just like not right. And she started replacing them. She had more success than any other client I ever had. And we started with a nightstand. It seems like that was a people pleasing uh, was probably one of her biggest, um, let's say, resistances in, in terms of, let's say she was prioritizing the guests over herself. Yeah, that you picked up on that beautifully. She's prioritizing guests over herself and her house was designed so that other people would come into it and say how lovely it was. Not based on what she, she was like such a colorful, fun person and her house was like stark white. And I was like, it's confusing to me that your house is white. And she was like, well, I just looked at all the magazines and like did what the magazines had. And I was like, yeah, but what do you like? <laughs> what do you actually enjoy? Like, what brings you joy? And she was like, I don't no, getting praise from people gets me joy. I said, it's COVID. When was the last time somebody was in your house? She said, I don't know, two years ago. <laughs> I said, well, then it might be time to paint your walls a shade that you actually like. <laughs> and she was like, this is what I'm paying you for? <laughs> but yeah. And it's working. <laughs> it's silly, but matters. Yeah. I think that's another thing when it comes to coaching is that that like people think that you're going to give them all the answers, uh, but what you're actually doing is you're asking them all the right questions, 
like the questions that they're probably not asking themselves or the questions that they're asking themselves and avoiding or not answering that they're resisting and that by bringing the right questions to the table and let's say making them aware of those situations i think that's yeah. something that people forget that they think that coaching is all about okay they're going to give me the all the answers that i'm looking for whereas right. they already have all the answers themselves they're just not asking the right questions this is an interesting thing I think about burnout coaching specifically, because while I do believe that to be true in a typical coaching relationship, when you're burnt out and you're, there's various parts of your brain that are not functioning the way that they're supposed to, you lose a little bit of perspective and possibility. So in burnout coaching, I do believe that some suggestion often needs to be placed, especially in the beginning, because people don't always have the ability to answer these questions because their brain is not online. Like, one of the things that happens during stress when you have high levels of adrenaline coursing through your body is you focus more like focus requires adrenaline or uh, epinephrine. You guys call it right. Focus requires epinephrine. So when you're focused and you've got this like high level of adrenaline or epinephrine flowing through your body. When that happens consistently over time, you also like kind of put on horse blinders on your eyes, like you lose visual perception on the sides of like peripheral perception, actually physically lose it. You also lose your ability in your mind to see possibilities that are outside the box. So you lose vision metaphorically and actually with burnout. So I, I do believe that with burnout coaching in particular, Ask all the right questions, sure, but when people really can't find the answer, I do think this is the one place in coaching that it's okay to offer up a one, two, or three options for a solution that they can then choose from. She would have never chosen to change her nightstand. That would have never happened. But she needed to. You know? Yeah, yeah, that was a good way of putting it, yeah. I think another thing that you covered there in, in terms of, let's say, your um, becoming aware of your safety, you said that came from um, your childhood. Um, do you feel that um, there's a connection? As, as you said, there there's there was a connection there between your safety um, as, as a child, uh, your experience with safety as a child and your burnout. This is as far as. Adverse childhood experiences, We these are called ACEs, and you can get an ACEs score on like the CDC website. It's usually a zero to 10. There are thousands of studies of direct correlations between people who have ACEs scores, as little as one, as, as many as 10, that led to developmental changes in their brain that then further led to difficulties with their occupations, difficulties with mental health, difficulties with physical health, depression and anxiety and heart attack and stroke. So these things are already correlated. So this is not something that I believe. The research is absolutely very clear on this front. We have not studied just yet, although it is happening now. There's some doctoral dissertations that came out last year that are starting to dig into this a bit more that correlate directly high levels of adverse childhood experiences and burnout specifically. Because when you, adverse childhood experiences, first of all, for everybody out there, are physical abuse, mental abuse, neglect, that you are either the victim of 
or that you witness in your household. So if your father beat your mother but did not beat you, that still counts as an ACE score. That's still one point. In addition to physical abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, and neglect, we also have to look at incarcerations. So if you had a parent that was incarcerated, that will be an ACE score. Poverty, severe poverty is an ACE score. And something just, oh, addiction, addictions and alcoholism. So if somebody in your family is experiencing that, in your household is experiencing that, that's an ACE score. So if you have any of these experiences and you didn't have enough positive experiences to buffer those, so you didn't have like this amazing teacher who like swept you off your feet and made everything better, then you will have brain development changes that change the way your stress response works and your ability to respond to stress appropriately will be diminished. And your choice of coping mechanism will be worse. You'll choose more maladaptive coping mechanisms. And your ability to choose health-promoting behaviors on purpose is diminished. So when you're given a choice to have another drink or not have a drink, you're always going to choose to have another drink because of the way your brain developed. It doesn't even feel like an actual choice at that point. So ACEs are very highly correlated with all of these pieces. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense to me that it wouldn't also be directly correlated with burnout. We just don't have a, like super clear direct studies on that, but it's come, it has to be coming because it just makes too much sense to me. Does that, is that clear? Yeah. I, th I think when, when you say that, let's say that there's no studies around, let's say ACEs and burnout, is it that there's, have been less studies around ACEs and less studies less around burnout? Less studies around burnout. No, the ACEs studies, there's thousands of them. Okay. But less studies, because burnout only got a definition in 2019, right? So May 28th, 2019, the World Health Organization finally gave burnout a definition, which they took from researchers, Christina Maslach, Michael Leiter, et cetera. They're, most of the research that we have Outside of what Christina Maslach and Michael Leader have done for the past 50 years, most of the research we have is from 2019 and moving forward, which means we don't have long-term retrospective or long-term pro prospective studies because we haven't had enough time to do them. We just, we haven't had enough time. Four years is not enough time to do those studies. These are decades that we need to find these correlations and really work through that amount of data. And in the national um, surveys that that are done by the United States on a very on every on a yearly basis, they interview over thirty thousand families across the United States. They don't ask about burnout, so we we can't make correlations for things we don't have data on. You know. Yeah, and again, being such a new, let's say. Um topic for discussion is all burnout and a definition around burnout there's a lot of people who have a misunderstanding of what burnout it actually is. is because i've yeah. come across a lot of people and they say oh you talk you talk about burnout and you're like oh i burn out every tuesday but i feel okay by thursday and then i'm fine <laughs> by the weekend but sometimes it hits me again monday or tuesday and i'm like that's not burnout more than likely it's a really bad hangover if you're still feeling it on tuesday if you're fine by thursday um, and are, are there people be like, oh, I always push myself to the edge of burnout, but then I feel stronger afterwards. And like, that's probably not burnout. You're probably feeling a little sore after the gym or after working out. So that's not actually burning out. Yes, you might feel a bit fatigued, but that's not burnout. And just trying to have those discussions. Um, so I think it's um, in one way, kind of increasing awareness of what burnout actually is. And yeah. also not, let's say, 
playing playing it down either. Yeah. So I think the the difficult part that I find in this is that the current definition I don't think is um, perfect. I think there's still a lot of room for improvement, right? The current definition says that burnout is an occupational hazard and consists of three components. Physical and emotional exhaustion is component number one. Cynicism and detachment is component number two or number three, depending on which website you're reading. And the third component is lack of impact, lack of productivity. But still related to being an occupational hazard. And I'm like, you're trying to tell me that a stay-at-home mother can't be burnt out? That's no. Mm -mm. And the factors we're looking at for things that cause burnout, everybody says cause. I hate saying cause burnout because they're all correlates. We cannot say something is a cause when it's a correlate, but that's a different science talk for a different day. What people are considering, the causes of burnout are all workplace factors, right? Workload. I'm sure you've talked about this on the podcast before. Workload, lack of fairness, lack of autonomy, lack of community, lack of praise and recognition, um, and values mismatch. Those are the six factors within the workplace that can make someone vulnerable to work to, to burnout. But we just talked about the fact that if somebody experiences ACEs, one or more, typically the most detrimental are four aces plus you experience that you are on a different trajectory than everybody else so your experience in life is going to be different your choices are going to be different your behaviors are going to be different and of course that's going to contribute to burnout and then we're also not talking about when we just talk about the workplace the culture that enforces it then in the states two of our top 10 values are hard work and individualism so do it alone and make it hard. <laughs> How If you absorb that and internalize that, which you probably will, because if it's the culture that you grew up in, you're going to push yourself hard and you're going to try and do it alone because you think that that's correct. Well, that, of course, is going to contribute to some burnout. If you have health conditions, if you have depression or anxiety or a chronic illness or whatever it happens to be, a disability, then... It's, you're going to have to work harder and work differently than some other people. That's going to make it more difficult difficult for you. That makes you more prone to burnout. If you experience in your culture any of the isms, racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, any of the isms, that literally creates inflammation in your body on a day-to-day -day basis, of course that makes you more susceptible to burnout. So there's all of these pieces that where that we haven't made enough space for yet within the definition of burnout. It's it's broad, but not specific enough and not broad enough. I feel like it's a matter of is 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 it that when it, when it happens in the workplace, and again, as you said, we're being let's say idolized for uh, individual uh, effort and mm. maximum productivity, maximum effort, mm. Mm. and um, is it that? there's no open space for discussion in, in the workplace or that it's kind of, it's the, the stigma around um, stress, overwhelm or burnout in the workplace is that, oh, if you're burnt out, oh, you're not able to take on this or this mm -hmm. workload is too much for you. Um, yeah. You're, you're not, you're probably not up for the next promotion because you, you, you just can't handle the stress well. Yeah. Um, and you never want to be the person that can't hack it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of that it's not being addressed or if mm -hmm. someone was to, um, let's say, take a sabbatical to, let's say, 
uh, try and stop themselves from burning out. Uh, maybe maybe they, they feel the the early, the early onset of burnout or maybe, maybe they're trying to stop a relapse. Um, I've had some people um, say to me that they reached out to their employers uh, to say, oh, can they take a sabbatical? Um, because let's say they're they're early in their career, but they know that if they continue another six months like this, they're going to burn out. And they were told, oh, you usually people don't take that sabbatical until six to 12 months down the line when they do burn out. And they were kind of being interrogated on why do you want a sabbatical so early because you shouldn't be burning out for another year. And they were, it was kind of like, burning out was a badge of honor that you had to earn earn get the Mm. sabbatical yeah yeah i think that that's true i think that that's still true i think it's hard to speak up i think it's becoming easier but it's still hard to speak up and employers don't have really good responses for it yet because we haven't been doing it well yet so you speak up but you don't know what the response is going to be it's easy to get stuck in that this is why I don't blame people for burning out. This is why I always tell people that burnout is not your fault. Like there's there's all these various things that have to come together that make it difficult for you to speak up. And if you're somebody who has a difficult time speaking up anyway, this just makes it harder. So yeah, I think I think that is it's hard to be that vulnerable because those of us that burn out, how vulnerable are we on a regular basis? Not very. We're protected. Our emotions are protected. We don't often share large pieces of ourselves, right? So we're not going to suddenly go from that to being like super transparent about the fact that we're burning out and we don't know what to do about it. I think, yeah, as you said, it's a big step to admit to it as well. Yeah. Like, and and it's, it's such a big step. And I think as well, another conversation that people have when they, it's so hard, especially in the workplace, to approach a manager and say, I'm feeling burnt out. Another thing is if you say that you feel stressed in your work and they're straight up there, like how are you? uh, You can't say that you're stressed at your, at your work. How how dare you say that this is a stressful position that this isn't stressful at all, but like from an individual's perspective, if they feel stressed at work, it's nine times out of 10 because they care about the work that they do. You're not going to be stressed out at work if you don't care about getting your job done or getting the results. Why and, you uh, care about getting the job done and getting the results is a whole separate issue. It might be because you love your job, but it might be because you're a perfectionist. It might be because you're a people pleaser. It might be because so why you want to get the job done is a whole separate rabbit hole. But absolutely you care about getting it done and getting it done well for whatever series of reasons. Yeah, and that's something that I feel is often overlooked when they're yeah. trying to have that conversation then with a manager or with their with with their uh, team leader and they're like, look, I'm feeling stressed out. I need to take a step back. And they're told, no, you can't take a step back. You need to get this done. And it's like, but if they don't take a step back, probably going to burn out and it won't be done anyway. And they could be out sick for the next six months. God, like, God forbid. But like, it's um, it's trying to have that conversation and try to get both employee and manager on the same page yeah as as to where where they're coming from in terms of let's say look i need to do this for my mental health but i really care about getting this job done 
Yeah. So this is a really important point and something that a friend of mine, Heather Hansen, talks about a lot, like how to ask for things that you know that you need in a way that is more likely to get you the response that you want. And one one of the things that she says is you have to convince your own internal jury that you're doing the right thing. So if you're somebody who likes to push through, asking for time off is going to feel awkward. And if you ask for that time off feeling awkward and resentful and frustrated, then it's probably not going to come across well when you're talking to your manager. If you've in if you know your internal jury is like, yeah, we like absolutely, we totally need this. We're on board. Like we're excited about asking for it because we know we need it. Your your next step, Heather always says, is to make sure that you understand the percep the percep perception of the person and the perspective of the person that you're talking to. Just like you're saying, you added this piece so beautifully. I want to get this work done well. So is that enough to convince your employer? It might or it might not be. It depends on who your manager is. You have to know who they are, what they like, how they like to get information. Do they want bullet points on a page? Do they want to have a conversation? Do they care about the emotions? Do they not? The fact that you need a break is probably irrelevant to your employer. But the fact that you're going to do your job really well and come back fully loaded and ready to go in three months and the fact that you'll be more productive and happier and be able to help other people and all these other things, if you include that in your conversation, then it becomes much easier to get that yes or to get the, the response that you're looking for. Yeah, yeah. I actually had a, had, um, a friend of mine uh, come with me a similar story to that, exactly mm. coming to their manager with a similar approach. And yeah. they had it as far as like as far as I could tell from, from what from from the story they told me, they had it all down to basically very bullet point. They want to get this job done, but they were being loaded down with extra tasks. And they were like, look, I'm working on project A. I know the deadline for project A is in two weeks time. But you also have me working on project B and C. Now, if you want me to finish project A to completion, I'm either going to need to extend the deadline. You're going to have to take me off project B and C so that I can work solely on project A. Or yeah. you're going to need to delegate someone else in the team to help me finish project A to completion. And straight up, their manager was like, how dare you? How dare you approach me and look for extra yeah. time? It's not how always going to work. for extra, <laughs> e extra help on this? This is your duty. This is your job. Are you saying you're incompetent in completing this? And I was gobsmacked when I heard that. And well, it's like, crappy leadership, right? Yeah, yeah. And I was gobsmacked when I first heard that. Uh, and I was like, I was like, how dare a manager have that approach in, when someone came to them looking to complete Project A? They could have very easily just not completed on time and used Project B and Project C as an excuse. Whereas yeah. they came to them, they approached them before the deadline. And because they cared about completing the project, again, for whatever the reason may be that they wanted to complete the project, they were coming from a place of, look, I want to have an honest conversation with my manager and in, in, in a way that it benefits both of us, that I don't burn out and that I am happy with the results that I get for Project A. And that they're also happy with the results that they can see that I gave it my utmost effort. And I was so taken aback. And the, the first time I shared this story, I got um, a bit of backlash from someone else who reached out to me and said, how did you find out about that story about me? And why did you share it on your podcast? <laughs> and I was like, first of all, I was like, didn't even know that that experience. I don't know happened. you. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I was, I was, I was like, I was like, I, I don't know how I'd even come across that information, but the conversation that I wanted to have then was, wait a second, this wasn't a once off. 
this was someone in a completely different country and I thought it was maybe just the culture there. But I was like, if you're saying this is something closer to home that's happening, closer to home, is this something that, is it a cultural issue? Is it, is it, um, it, it wasn't a specific manager issue because I, I was like, okay, if this is happening on more than one occasion, is this something that's being passed along culturally from the top down? Mm-hmm. And I was like, is this, uh, is this a management style that's being used widely mm-hmm. and no one's mm-hmm. talking about it? And it wasn't until I had shared that one story that it started coming up. That I was like, okay, someone else relates to this because they've experienced it also. How do we knit this in the bud? How do we have this conversation? Is this a conversation that we need to have with management that they need to see where employees are coming from? That Here's the thing. Some managers are never going to see it no matter what you say and no matter how you say it. Mastering, Heather always says, mastering the art of the ask means that you feel confident asking, but it doesn't always mean you're going to get what you're asking for because you can't control other people's responses or behavior. And if, for instance, you're someone who has, say, five out of 10 aces, and then you go into the workplace and you expect yourself to be able to handle the same amount of stress as Susan from accounting, who has zero aces, You're not likely to be able to keep up with other people. And if your job requires more than you can give, to me and for my clients, that's just simply a data point that lets us know that that might not be the right job for you or the right manager for you. Maybe it's moving within the company. Maybe it's moving jobs. But not every job is like that and not every manager is like that. And there are people that will thrive under a manager like that who want to do projects A, B, and C and who have more ability to manage stress than you do. I think we have to understand that both of these – that manager is a jerk, first of all. I don't believe that that management style should exist, but it does exist. And thinking it shouldn't exist and we can fix it I think is – a very big conversation that organizational psychologists have been having for over a decade and they haven't fixed it yet. So I don't think I'm going to fix it this week. And I don't think my clients are going to fix it this week either. So what do we need to do going back to the beginning? What do we need to do to increase your feelings of safety? Is that planning an exit strategy from this job so that you're not quitting with nothing to fall back on, but so that you know that you're getting out of a place that doesn't support your needs? This is just data. If if that happens to you, this is data. A lot of people will try to pretzel themselves into staying in a job because you should be able to. But you know what? If you can't, you can't. As an acupuncturist, I was seeing anywhere between 50 and 80 people a week. I liked seeing about 40. That was my sweet spot. There are some acupuncturists that can't see more than 25 patients a week because they interact with patients differently. They might do longer appointments. They might have only do one person at a time or whatever happens, whatever reason. It doesn't even matter why. But it is okay, and you need to understand for yourself that it is okay if your capacity is not the same as other people's, but you need to work in a place that respects your capacity, and you need to respect your capacity. But it might not be as much as Susan's in accounting, and there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can increase your capacity to a certain degree, but you might not be able to increase it to a point that makes you able to do all those things. That was a little bit of a rant. But was at the same time, very well said and, and very to the point. As rants go, I've gone off on rants, even on my own solo episodes. I'm like, oh, I'm <laughs> going off on a rant here. I need to reel <laughs> myself back in. 
<sighs> but like in terms of getting A scores, and if mm-hmm. if someone knows, like if if someone doesn't know about A scores, and yeah. they know that okay, maybe I should check this out. Um, yeah. but then let's say they, they find themselves in a position where they're like, okay, I'm scoring, I, I have an, an ace score four or six mm. or eight, mm. and mm. they realize, look, this is affecting me. And it, it can be hard to have that conversation about your A scores with a manager. Oh, no, you don't need to do that. Ex- 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 like it's, it's, your manager's it's, not going to know what to do with that. That's for a therapist. You yeah. need to learn a better coping techniques, better coping mechanisms. You need to learn how to increase your own feelings of safety. You need to learn how to advocate for yourself so that you're getting the things that you need as often as possible. Not always. It's None of us get everything we need all the time, but as often as possible. And you need to allow space for some healing to happen. So brain development, we know now, doesn't stop when you turn 21 or 25 or 29. Your brain is plastic and can continue to change. So what is it that we need to do? Some of it is mindset work. Some of it is therapy. Some of it is what I was saying before, this yoga nidra or non-sleep deep rest or um, or body scan meditative type practices. Those things will change your brain over time. Will they make it so that you have totally normal development? Probably not. But will they make it better and increase your capacity? Absolutely. Will changing your coping mechanisms to more adaptive coping mechanisms increase your capacity? Absolutely. Will learning how to manage your emotions and regulate your emotions increase your capacity? 100%. But this requires help. This is not something we do on our own. It's definitely not something your manager knows how to do at an average workplace. Yeah, because I feel that sometimes you might feel that you're in that position where it's uh, you you want to talk to your manager on a certain level and explain explain why you're stressed, but of course discussing your A score isn't going to help in that situation. But as you said, yes, getting that professional help and helping you figuring out yourself and again tuning in with yourself is the biggest step forward you can take in that scenario. Hundred percent. I think another area that we have yet to cover, and you cover this a lot on your podcast, and you say a lot that resentment is a superpower. That's something that um, I had never really come across before or anyone kind of making that brave a statement. So why is why do you see resentment as a superpower? Resentment is my favorite emotion of all times. It is how I make all my decisions in my business. It's how I decide my pricing. It's how I decide who I'm going to work with, who I'm not going to work with, what projects I'm going to take, what projects I'm not going to take. Resentment, when you pay close attention to it, will show you perfectly every single time where your boundaries are being crossed. This is how you figure out where your boundaries need to be. Boundary work is an essential piece of burnout recovery. But most people don't even know what boundaries they need in place and often read something on Instagram about boundaries and just start saying no randomly on the street because they heard on Instagram that no is a complete sentence. Most of the time, no is not a complete sentence and you have offered no reason for anyone to give you any sort of grace because they don't know the story. They don't know what's going on. Not that you have to justify yourself, but if that you're asking for grace, 
you need to give people some sort of information that would entice them to give it to you. Like how often do you let somebody cut you off on the highway and automatically turn to giving them grace and say, well, maybe they have a child in the hospital. They're just trying to get there as fast as they can. No, you swear at them immediately. They pull in front of you and your brain goes right away. Right. This that's the same thing that happens with other people. So when we're looking at resentment, the job is to look for patterns and themes in our lives, things that pop up frequently so that we can say, okay, is this something that means that I need to pull back myself, that I'm overgiving in this situation? Like, I'm resentful that at my work, I'm always doing Susan from Accounting's job. Poor Susan from Accounting is getting all the bashing today, right? But I, I am, I'm doing half of her job and I'm resentful about it. Then you have to look at, is Susan actually asking me to do half her job or am I over anxious that Susan's job isn't getting done so I'm doing half of her job before she even asks? If the answer is that you're doing half of her job before she asks, it is your job to pull yourself out of that situation. This is an internal boundary. It does not require a conversation. This is about you living with the guilt of not overgiving, of not being the savior, of not being the martyr. You find out that a conversation needs to happen, then you find out a conversation needs to happen. Susan's asking you to do things that are not your job. So you have to sit down and say, hey, Susan, I'm not going to do this, this or this anymore. If you ask me, I'm just going to return the email to you because making a request for someone else's behavior change is not a boundary. It's a request. The boundary is if you deny my request, if you act against my request, this is the response I will have to you. This is what I will do. And then you have to be consistent about that. But resentment will teach you every time where your boundaries are. The thing that I, the extra step that I think is critical about resentment is that when you start to feel resentful, it interferes with your generosity. This is why I said I make all my business decisions based in resentment. If somebody asks me to do something, say I get invited to do a keynote and they're paying 10% of my fee. And I say, sure, I'll do it, but I'm mad about it because I don't want to do a keynote for 10% of my fee because it's not enough money. But I say yes because I feel bad and I'm a people pleaser and I don't want to say no. And then I get there and they ask me to do one extra thing, have coffee with a VIP or something. And now I'm doubly annoyed, feeling ungenerous and I'm irritable because I'm doing this stupid talk for 10% of my fee. Now I have to have coffee with Susan from accounting, who I don't even like or know. And now I'm giving you all this stuff. And why am I giving you all this stuff? I'm not getting it back. So if a decision is going to interfere with my generosity by creating resentment, I say no. Makes my life a thousand times better. I just don't do things that I don't want to do anymore. And if I do, I make a really clear plan in my mind about why I'm doing it, what it's for, why the sacrifice so that I'm not expecting anything else from the other side. If I make the decision, it's on me, not on them. But most of the time I just say, no, thanks. So you're not, let's say, you're not creating resentment. 
I no, you're remember, using it. You're, you're, using, you're using, yes. using it as a tool. Yes, you're using it as a transformative thing. You can transform resentment into boundaries, which leads to you being more generous in the ways that you like to be generous because you will have more energy available and feel good about the places you show up. When I get my full fee for a keynote, you want me to go to breakfast with the VIP? You want me to stay late and have dessert? You want me to take so-and-so out for a drink? I'll do whatever you want. Because I feel generous right now because I'm feeling like I got what I deserved. So cool. Let's do this. It's a completely different way of being in the world. But a lot of us walk around with this. I did all these things for you. You don't appreciate it. I do all these things for everybody. I never get the thank you. Nobody ever helps me. I just don't play that game anymore. Resentment taught me how. I love it. It, again, you're you're you don't want to show up with that negative energy. No. So so you're putting yourself in that place where, okay, it, in, instead of creating that resentment, I'm putting yourself in that scenario where you are going to be resentful. You're you're only going to show yourself in a bad light if you if you're carrying that resentment. So you're you creating it. situations where you won't carry that resentment. Yes, and sometimes you realize after the fact. So what it does for you is tells you the next time something like this comes up, you're going to make a different decision. And for now, you can let it go because it's already happening and it's not their fault that you agreed to do something that you don't actually want to do. So then you can manage your emotions that way. That's self-regulation. But it's okay to notice it after the fact and be like, shoot, I'm not going to do that again. You know, like it's okay to catch yourself after too. But now I use it as a preventative measure, but only because I practice every day. <laughs> yeah, so I think for lots of people, that trial and error starting out on what they do carry resentment on is yes. asking themselves how they feel in certain situations. And it might be exactly. there might there might be a lot of, let's say, vampires in their life sucking energy from them, maybe on a daily on a weekly basis. And they have most to see of the time, though. They started that relationship too. Those of us that burn out and were people pleasers, we gave you all the things we thought that you wanted so that you would love us. And then we're mad that you're taking it. Yeah, when it comes from a people pleasing point of view, yeah, because you've been, they, they get conditioned into being pleased by you. Yeah. And next thing, as soon as you start turning around and, and, creating those boundaries they're like yeah. what's happened what's happened you've changed man you've changed well and people get bent out of shape about that they're like well yeah. as soon as i put in boundaries nobody loved me anymore well how would you like if somebody changed the rules of monopoly halfway through the game it's awkward it's weird to completely shift the energy of a relationship you have taught someone that you will always show up for them you will drop your own needs at any given time you'll always do the right thing and then you stop doing it. Of course, they're uncomfortable. That's that's a hard like we don't give people enough grace around their own reaction to the fact that we're changing. Some of those relationships can involve can evolve and some of them don't. But if some if you showed up to my house every Tuesday and you're like, I'm just going to vacuum your house on Tuesdays because I like you and I'd like to help. I'd be like, OK, vacuum my house then. I, I don't have to do it. Six months in, you're like, I vacuum your house every week and you don't even appreciate it. I'm like, I never asked you to vacuum my house. I didn't ask you to do that. 
you don't want to va- don't vacuum it. You don't have to vacuum anymore. But then you're not staying for coffee if you didn't vacuum because that's the, the thing we do. You vacuum and then I make you coffee. That's that's what I thought the exchange was. You're changing the rules on me. You don't have to vacuum, but I also don't have to make you coffee. I make a good coffee. <laughs> right? Does that make sense? Like we need to give people a little more space around when we are changing, like instead of just turning directly to anger and saying, well, you you don't uh, like me anymore because I'm not giving you everything because you're so selfish and you're a taker and you're a vampire. Like, relax, Susan. Slow down. You literally change the rules of the game halfway through and you're expecting everybody to be on board. It's a hard shift for everyone involved. And what came into play there, let's say, in the, the vacuuming scenario, six months down the line, <laughs> it was, it was uh, let's say, there, there was no communication there. It was a self-narrative no. that made exactly. it, a, it was a self-narrative that made exactly. it, oh, this is expected of me for the past six months. Yeah. Look, Where... I did all these things for you. I didn't ask you to. What do you do? It's in stop. Why? I didn't ask you to show up with a vacuum. It's weird. But you did. So whatever. I'm not going to say no to a free vacuum. Yeah, so I, I think at the end of the day, it's it's having when that self narrative comes in, it's kind of um that negative self talk that um yeah. kind of smack talking yourself. It's yeah. um trying to when that sets in, it's like okay, if that's the way I feel with this person, I need to have an open discussion with this person yeah. about that scenario, so that yes. we are on the same ground on on level on the level playing field when it comes yeah. to this scenario, rather than me jumping to conclusions. And making the scenario 10 times worse than it is that we right. come to an agreement. I was like, hey, are we still doing this thing? I, I'm not yeah. comfortable with, with vacuuming every Tuesday. And yeah. it's like, okay, well, in, in that in that case. I, I or you could not come and vacuum, right? Just don't come and vacuum and call me and say, hey, you want to come over for a coffee today? If you want to spend time together, then ask me to spend time together differently. Like you can sometimes change the rules of the relationship without addressing the thing directly. Of course, if it's something super obvious, like vacuuming on Tuesdays, there's going to have to be a conversation because it's a weird shift. But a lot of times, these are much smaller shifts than we realize. And what we have to do is just change the pattern. And oftentimes, people don't even really notice or are totally okay with it because it's such a small, hey, why don't you come over and grab a coffee with me? You're like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, sounds good. Like you're not even thinking about it because you're not thinking about the fact that you've had the that they've been vacuuming for you every week because you don't pay attention to it anymore because it just keeps happening. Your brain just deletes it because the brain is an efficient machine and says, I don't have to vacuum anymore. I'm just gonna like erase that from my brain really quickly. Take it off the list. And brush up on your own coffee skills. Yeah. Exactly. Brilliant. Yeah, I I I just found it so interesting when when you use resentment as a superpower because I've I've come across let's say lots of different people using different um feelings and techniques and things that are often seen as negative recently yeah. and seeing them as their superpowers it's a reframing I think at at the end of the day it's how do you reframe these situations that are always seen in a bad light yeah. yes and how do we use them to our advantage 
how do we use them to our advantage? How do we use, how do we admit to this emotion that we're all having anyway and use it to our advantage? Especially because when you're burnt out, you're not likely to feel a ton of joy and gratitude and like love. You're probably mostly annoyed most of the time. So let's use the emotion that's a low hanging fruit and do something with that until it allows us to create enough space to feel joy and connection and gratitude again. Just my little thought. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, Kate, if anyone does want to, let's say, get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to get in touch other than uh, the your podcast, Fright? Yeah, the podcast is absolutely the best way, Fried the Burnout Podcast. Outside of that, um, LinkedIn is actually the best place to find me. Kate Donovan, it'll say burnout all over the place. You can't miss me. I have a little frying pan next to my name because Fried the Burnout Podcast and I because I amuse myself in all things. <laughs> so LinkedIn is a really good, great place to connect. Yeah, I think that's the way uh, things have been going lately. And a lot of people have reached out to me as well. They're like, oh, I'll, I'll get out. I'll reach you on Facebook. I'm like... Just message me on LinkedIn. That That's where I hang out these days. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. If, if you want me to get back to you, it'll be LinkedIn. Exactly. Awesome. Brilliant. Kate, it was uh, what uh, what an hour this has been. It, and and it's so much. And rants, the, the rants were, were all dialed in. So um, thank you for keeping uh, uh, the rants pretty much on point and on topic. And uh, it would be tried. great to have you on the show again. I'd love to come back. Thanks for having me.